Well, we'll come back again this week, and we've been discussing the idea of blame for secession. And as we stated, the blame for secession and the war is laid on the South today, but the blame could just as well have been placed on the North. There is an example after example in my book of the people in the North who said secession was legitimate and more or less encouraged this move, but who became rabid unionists once secession began. In all of these cases, they were part of the Illuminist movements that came out of the second and third generation of organizations descendant from the Illuminati. The anti-slavery movement was very large in the North. For instance, the American Anti-Slavery Society of Garrison began early on to have 70 full-time agents traveling the country forming chapters of the Anti-Slavery Society. You can imagine the cost of 70 full-time agents. The organization had 250,000 members at one time with 2,000 local chapters and 20 journals. This is considerable influence and it would be the equivalent of over 10 million members today when measured by today's level of population. This level of influence, keep in mind, was confined to the northern states, less than half of the nation at the time. You can imagine the level of influence such an organization would have over states above the Mason-Dixon line today and no further west than Wisconsin with 10 million members. Under the presidency of Wendell Phillips, the Anti-Slavery Society became what was known as a come-outer movement. After the war, Phillips would join the newly formed Communist First Internationale. This was the type of leadership of this very large organization. Now, come-outers believe that as the Constitution is pro-slavery, therefore its destruction and the Union along with it is desired. Again, no real talk of amending. They simply wanted to do away with the Constitution itself. From the very beginning of the American Anti-Slavery Society, its leaders in the North advocated disunion of the United States. Recall that William Garrison's abolitionist newspaper, The Liberator, had on its masthead, Our country is the world. Our countrymen are mankind. By 1842, The Liberator also was using its motto, A repeal of the union between Northern liberty and Southern slavery is essential to the abolition of the one and the preservation of the other. The key words are a repeal of the Union. In other words, Garrison never hid the end he had in mind, disunion of the United States. This is why so many Americans rejected the abolitionist program. It wasn't they were against slavery. They were opposed to the leaders working to abolish the United States in, in, in the process and did not want the baggage that came with their program the dissolution of the country, and the Constitution. In January 1857, a disunion convention was held in Worcester, Massachusetts. In attendance were some of the socialist and anti-slavery leaders, including John Brown, the terrorist. James Ridpath covered the convention for the New York Tribune. It was Ridpath who helped the public buildup of John Brown into a hero. After the convention, Ridpath went to Kansas, to ride with another abolitionist army terrorizing the countryside. After the Civil War, Ridpath started a very successful Speakers Bureau to propagandize the people. Some of his speakers were vastly entertaining, but within the stable of speakers were men and women who were leaders in the socialist agenda. My book contains all matter of quotes uh, from liberal clergy and politicians in the North who wanted to dissolve the United States 
and then switched immediately after the war started. I will stick with Wendell Phillips as an example, however, here. Early in the war, he still advocated the dissolution of the country and gave a speech saying so. It was printed in the London Times and titled Disunion. Just three months later, Phillips gave a sermon supporting the war effort to preserve the Union on April 21st, 1861. The conspiracy got their war. Now is the time to fight it. There were many Republicans that promoted the idea of separation of the two sections of the country before the war commenced. It was so bad that after the war, it led the Democrat Party to publish the Democratic Speaker's Handbook for Democratic candidates to use against Republicans for bringing about the war. It contained example after example of Republicans who acted as hypocrites relative to their position before the war and how they switched once the war started. Perhaps the worst case was Edwin Stanton, who served on the state's rights cabinet of Buchanan as attorney general. He was for secession until after the election of Lincoln when he switched sides and wormed his way into the Lincoln cabinet as secretary of war once the war had started. Stanton would oversee the largest buildup of communists in the federal government and the military. We will get into this in another segment, very important information. Meanwhile, there were agitators in the South. We've documented this in an earlier segment, but there were those who promoted the idea that not only were the slaves inferior, what was needed was a totalitarian style of government. Now, this is not the story we hear today that the Southerners were libertarians. Not all of them were, and they were part of the socialist buildup in the thinking across the country. Men like George Fitzhugh and Governor James Henry Hammond of South Carolina were decidedly in favor of big government. What was needed was good government and plenty of it, not liberty, according to the Sociology for the South or the Failure of Free Society by George Fitzhugh in 1854. Now you can imagine how a northerner would react to this statement. So back and forth, the rhetoric called for disunion in both sections of the country. You can imagine the reaction of the average citizen in the South when he realized that the North disunionists didn't mean it. A lot of the disunionists in the South didn't mean it either. By then it was too late. The die had been cast. War would descend on America and with it massive changes in our society and in our form of government. Next week, very important information on the elections of 1856, 1860, in 1864. I think you'll find it very interesting. Until then, next week.